Welcome back to the Tea Leaves Podcast. This week, we are bringing you part two of our conversation with Ashley Tellis, focused on the state of U.S.-India relations and opportunities for deeper cooperation on trade and technology. This is the weakest plank, actually, in the bilateral relationship is the economic. We've seen quite uh, secular increases in trade and investment between the two countries over the last 20 years. But the economic relationship is nowhere where it ought to be for countries of our size and for countries that share the strategic ambition of becoming partners. For those of you who have not yet tuned in for part one, Ashley is the Tata Chair for Strategic Affairs and a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And we are lucky to call Ashley our colleague here at the Asia Group, where he is a senior advisor. Ashley's government career included distinguished service in the U.S. State Department and senior positions on the National Security Council, including as special assistant to President George W. Bush and senior director for strategic planning and Southwest Asia. You know, if you were to put your government hat on again and task yourself with, okay, how do you fashion going forward the three, four, five priorities for the United States, given this complicated, challenging mix, which presents, you know, to include, you know, domestic challenges for us, given critiques from voices in Washington, critiques from voices in Congress about India. But you want a forward-looking agenda that's focused on the Indo-Pacific, given the natural and sustained alignment the United States and India have vis-a-vis China, and our own, the own convergence of our interests in the Indian Ocean, etc. What are those top three or four items as you look at U.S. broadly, U.S.-India relations. We've touched on a little bit of them, you know, diversification in the defense realm, but I'm interested also in how you view India's potential role, for example, on the economic side with the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework Initiative that the United States has rolled out. But how would you fashion the agenda, you know, keeping in mind we have these high-level engagements occurring almost as we are speaking here today? So let me start by talking about the domestic issues, which have become obviously quite serious on Capitol Hill in recent times, and have also produced a measure of disquiet within the administration itself. We all know the story about how the Secretary of State had to personally intervene to shape you know, the human rights uh, report and its descriptions about India, the reports to that effect. To tone tone down the report. To effect. tone down the report because it might have otherwise made bilateral relations more difficult. I think we need to have that conversation with India, but I think it needs to be done respectfully and for the most part in private. Because if our objective is simply to convey dismay and beat the Indians up, of course we could do it publicly, but I can promise you it will have no impact on actually shaping India's trajectory and would actually diminish our influence with India. 
So I think the domestic disagreements ought to be handled privately. And, you know, we have done this in the past. This is not new to us. We have dealt with a variety of countries whose domestic political choices cause us varying degrees of dismay. And so that's the forum I would keep that conversation for. Private, respectful, and with a full acknowledgement of our own weaknesses as well, right? Because the U.S. too has lost a good deal of its model standing in recent years with respect to domestic politics. On the international agenda, I think there are two or three big things that we ought to focus on. The first is, of course, the common things that we can do to enhance security in the Indo-Pacific. And here we have to make a transition that we have been unable to make so far, which is we have looked at India as essentially a recipient of of defense technology and defense goods in much the same way that they have been for Russia over the last several decades. And what we've attempted to do is replace Russia with the United States. So in a sense, we've told them that diversification must mean instead of buying Russian products, you know, buy Western products. I don't think that strategy is going to succeed because the Indians are looking very carefully at the ambitious objective of indigenization. They do not want to be dependent on the Russians, but they do not want to replace dependence on Russia with a new dependence on the United States. They want to be able to manufacture advanced military goods at home. And this is where the U.S. has actually fallen short because we don't have the structural capacity within the government to encourage private companies to really uh, focus on co-production, co-development, and so on and so forth. Exactly the kinds of things that the Russians have actually done quite well. Well, I should I should rephrase that. The Russians have not done as well as people think, but at least in the public space, they have conveyed the impression that they are far more willing to work with India on co-development and co-manufacturing than the United States has. And unless we can address that deficit in our strategy, I don't think we'll be able to replace the Russians as quickly as we would like. And I don't think the Indians would be as eager to have us replace the Russians if all we do is simply sell things to them. So that's agenda item number one. Agenda item number two is that we've got to move beyond the ambition of doing great military exercises, which we've been doing now for many years, and move more and more in the arena of doing cooperative defense planning. Because there are huge challenges for us in the Indo-Pacific as there are for India. And we need to start thinking about how we can assist one another in meeting the strategic challenges that we face. And so moving into the arena of defense planning, I think, is something that we ought to start paying attention to. I think India is beginning to appreciate the importance of doing that, but we haven't moved as far as, as, as we need to. Third. This is the weakest plank, actually, in the bilateral relationship is the economic. We've seen quite uh, secular increases in trade and investment between the two countries over the last 20 years. But the economic relationship is nowhere where it ought to be for countries of our size and for countries that share the strategic ambition of becoming partners. In other words, you can't sustain a strategic alignment if we are not committed to enhancing the common prosperity of the two countries. 
you know, and, and that requires a much deeper intersection of the U.S. and Indian economies. Now, India, unfortunately, until very recently, was very skittish about thinking about open trade and so on and so forth. They seem to have turned the corner. You know, they've begun now after many years of self-doubt to explore things like free trade agreements with a handful of countries. And I think we ought to make it an ambition for ourselves that somewhere down the line, we would want to at least have the beginnings of a conversation about a free trade agreement between the United States and India. It's not going to be easy because the Indian economy is obviously much weaker than ours. It's got many limitations and India is a developing country. So it's not easy to engineer a free trade agreement. But over time, I don't see how we can sustain the relationship simply on the basis of geopolitics alone if we do not have a common agenda for mutual prosperity. How big of a variable is the change in leadership in Pakistan to all of the parameters that you've set in this bilateral relationship? Because we are now hearing that the new prime minister has come in and is talking about reviving the China-Pakistan economic corridor and its relationship with Beijing. It's going to be a very difficult relationship, Sherry, because even though Shabazz Sharif is a pragmatist, in comparison to the outgoing Prime Minister Imran Khan. Pakistan is going to double down on the relationship with China because it sees China as its only friend in the world. Now, unfortunately, that has certain consequences for the India-Pakistan relationship because as long as India views Pakistan as even more deeply in bed with the Chinese, the reluctance to change ties or to change the course of ties with Pakistan is only going to deepen. So to the degree that Pakistan doubles down in investing on China, that makes it harder for the Indians to, you know, think about a new relationship with Pakistan. There's also, you know, an open question about what this new prime minister is going to do on the one issue that India cares most about, which is Pakistani supported terrorism uh, against India. In the past, previous prime ministers have struggled to control the military and the intelligence services that support various uh, Indian insurgent groups. Nawaz Sharif, who was the brother of the current Shabazz Sharif, tried really hard to bring his own military under control on this count and failed. Now, Shabazz is a very astute leader. He is very close to the military, actually, in many ways. And one hopes he has better luck on this. But if he can't compel his own military to change course or induce them to change course, then I think India-Pakistan relations are going to remain problematic for a long time to come. Ashley, just a quick follow-up on this. As you look over time, has the relevance and importance of Pakistan gone up or down from the Indian strategic calculus, the calculus of Indian leaders? I think they have... It has, well, the short answer is it's gone down because most Indian leaders now look at Pakistan as a discomforting distraction uh, rather than a palpable threat. Certainly in comparison to China, the threat from China is seen as far more significant and enduring. The threat from Pakistan is sort of chronic, but it's not, it does not sort of dominate Indian security calculations in a way that it did before. 
And if India and Pakistan could actually find a way of resolving their differences, particularly with respect to the means that Pakistan uses, which is terrorism, then I think, you know, the Indians would be happy to simply forget that Pakistan exists. Or another way of saying it is the Indians would be happy to have a normal relationship with Pakistan when it comes to political intercourse, economic intercourse, and so on and so forth, and simply cease to think of Pakistan as a security challenge. But, you know, to get to that point, I think there are some important decisions that have to be made in Islamabad, which they have found very hard to do. Yeah. As I look out over the rest of 2022, Ashley, I assume... There's a hope and a desire to see the two leaders, President Biden and Prime Minister Modi, see each other for a summit. And, you know, if I had my druthers and was back in government, I would say we should, you know, aim for having President Biden travel to India before the year is out. And if you kind of take that as a given, question I have, Ashley, is what should the foreign policy apparatus, you know, what should the US, the Biden administration be aiming for? What would we want to put in place and come out as an output and a consequence of the a summit meeting for all, everything we've talked about here of the two leaders, say, in November of 2022? Well, you know, if President Biden makes the trip, I think that by itself would be a huge symbolic deliverable, because it would convey the continued American recognition of India's significance in the Indo-Pacific strategy. So I think it would be nice if the two sides can agree on such a trip and on a visit by the president to India. But if you ask me about the things that need to be done to sort of make that meaningful, I would point to two or three things. First, can we come up with a plan that allows us to support India's defense indigenization? Can we do, in effect, the equivalent of what the Russians did with India with respect to the BrahMos program, where they sat down with Indian technologists and really developed a system that is very impressive and very potent, and that the Indians have great pride, and as you look at the news reports in recent times, they actually managed to export the missile for the first time to the Philippines. Are there some marquee projects that we can envisage that the United States and India could do together? And I think uh, one thing that we ought to think about is the Indian AMCA program, you know, the next generation fighter that India is attempting to develop. Can the United States and India collaborate to make that the equivalent of what the Russians did with Brown? So think about defense and indigenization and the U.S. strategy to support Indian defense indigenization in a big way. The second thing would be, I believe, would be to inaugurate a series of consultations with respect to defense planning. You know, we're just nibbling on the margins here. I would like to see India and the United States commit to doing that. And this does not in any way abbreviate from India's strategic autonomy or, you know, its freedom to choose its own course, because planning together for defense contingencies doesn't pre-commit India to doing anything, nor does it pre-commit the United States. But it takes us to a point where if we actually had to do things together, the building blocks for that kind of collaboration would have been put in place. So I would like to see that happen. 
Third, I would like to see something happen in the realm of you know our trade and investment, including in the digital world, where India is moving you know very boldly on some digital initiatives that I must say leave me a little queasy, because they suggest an approach to digitalization that is more nationalistic and inward-looking rather than a commitment to an open information regime. And India is important for two reasons, right? First, it has a very huge base of users of digital technologies. And so there are market consequences if Indian nationalism ends up disadvantaging U.S. companies. And two, there's the demonstrative effect. Because India is such a big player, you know, among emerging markets, the choices that it makes, for example, with respect to digitalization, e-commerce, and so on and so forth, you know, would have others emulating it. And sometimes not in ways that are to our advantage and certainly not in ways that support a liberal order. So I would like us to be able to at least arrive at some agreements or some ways, some paths forward with respect to how we could collaborate in strengthening a liberal order with respect to economics, both merchandise as well as in the digital realm. So I think these are three big issues. There are many other things that we're doing, right? So we're going to be focusing on science and technology. We're going to focus on public health. We are focusing on education. I mean, the list is as long as my arm. Those things will continue. The really important issues to my mind are what can we do that are, that is catalyzing, that captures the imaginations you know, of elites in both places and build foundations for real cooperation. Has the Indo-Pacific economic framework done anything to capture the imaginations of people so far? No, because I think there are significant inhibitions on the Indian side. First, you know, the administration made the calculation that they didn't want India in the first group because India is a problem country in many ways when it comes to open trade agreements. And I think what the administration was trying to do was to create the contours of the architecture first among like-minded partners and then invite India at some subsequent stage in order to prevent India from really mucking up the negotiations at the get-go. So from a point of view of tactics, I understand the administration's approach completely. But sooner or later, I think we're going to have to bring India into the tent. And so I think we need to have those conversations to begin with. That's one. Second, at the end of the day, I don't know if the Indo-Pacific economic framework is really going to be a substitute for some very hard decisions that we have to make in the United States with respect to broader trade integration in Asia. That's, you know, a sort of very delicate way of saying we need to get our act together and join the TPP because, you know, we can play around in the margins. But if we are not in the TPP, which as far as I can tell is the only serious high quality trade agreement in Asia, then we've priced ourselves out of the rulemaking business. And yet nobody seems to be taking that seriously, that as an alternative at this point. Well, unfortunately, you know, the United States is at this moment uh, in its history where it's become jaundiced. Uh, you know, it has jaundiced attitudes about free trade. This administration is still reeling from the consequences of the last election, which they think reflects an anti-free trade sentiment in its own population. And so it's become skittish 
about expanding the free trade consensus globally. But I think that is that is a mistake. And if we can't pull ourselves out of that, we will end up ceding the rulemaking space to others. And that's not in our long-term interest. I'd just offer one sort of observation on the U.S. side that feels to me a little bit like the ground may be shifting in a good way on trade here. Our midterms may have an impact on political outlook for trade here in the United States. And, you know, we'll have to see. It's no question that friends and allies in Asia all would love to see the United States re-engage again on CPTPP. I think that would include India as well. Don't you agree, Ashley? Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. I mean, even if the Indians are not ready to join TPP just now, and I do not believe they are because of their own you know, internal political and economic weaknesses, the fact of the matter is they do want to see trade integration in Asia led by the United States and not by China. And that is in their interest. That is in their interest. And so getting back to TPP, I think, is is really important. But there's something that goes beyond TPP as well, right? I mean, we need to get our heads straight about the importance of an open global trading system for our own interests. And so you cannot have on one hand a desire to build trade openness and in the same breath talk about, you know, build in America and so on and so forth. I find the discussions in this country about trade, a worker-centric trade policies to be completely confusing. I'm not quite sure what they deliver, but it sends all the wrong signals. And so, you know, there's work that we have to do at home, even as we begin to, you know, think about re-engaging on trade issues abroad. Well, Ashley, it feels like we could go on for another 45 minutes and we've gone on a little longer than we typically do, but... I think it's because of the depth of the perspective you've offered us again here on Tea Leaves. So thank you so much, Ashley, for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Always a pleasure, Rex, and good to see you and Sherry-Ann as well. Take care, both of you. Ashley, it's always good talking to you. Thank you. And thanks to our listeners. Please be sure to rate and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also access a full video of our conversation on the Asia Group's YouTube channel. We'll see you next time on Tea Leaves.